Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. When you think of Harry Potter, what do you picture in your mind? Is it Daniel Radcliffe, the actor who portrayed Harry in all eight films? Is it the messy-haired boy on a broom from Mary Grand Prix's cover illustration for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Or is it someone entirely your own? This week, we're continuing our celebration of 20 years of Harry Potter in the U.S. by talking with some of the illustrators responsible for shaping how we visualize the boy who lived each have gotten a turn to bring their Harry to life. First, we'll hear some brief observations from Mary Grandprey. So 20 years ago, when I was sitting at my desk, working at my table, illustrating children's books, I received a phone call. And uh, it was a call from David Saylor at Scholastic Publishing in New York City. Uh, David and I spoke about this manuscript he had about a boy with magical powers and asked me if I'd be interested in possibly illustrating the cover of the book and some chapter headings. With each book, um, there's a certain process that I go through to come up with the um, cover illustrations and the chapter illustrations. I had very close contact with David Saylor, the art director, and with Arthur Levine, editor, and we all kind of worked together on what good imagery would be. It was really a treat to work with them, and book covers are wraparound pieces, so they're quite long and horizontal. They're large pieces of art. And we decided to make the book covers really rich and full, like the writing is, because and, and just pack it full of imagery and hidden little items that readers could go back to and pick out as they go through the story. So it's almost a collage effect. I feel very honored to be able to call myself the uh, original American illustrator of the Harry Potter series. It's been such a journey, and I've just enjoyed so much of it. And now that one of my favorite illustrators, Brian Selznick, has illustrated the covers, it's so exciting, and I can't wait just to keep enjoying those as well. Speaking of Brian Selznick, he's up next. Brian was selected to illustrate the covers of the 20th anniversary editions. If you haven't seen them yet, they are stunning. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the program. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're delighted that you are here and you're here for a very special reason. Can you tell our listeners how it felt when you first were asked to illustrate the 20th anniversary covers? <laughs> well, first it was terrifying. I realized right away, of course, it was a huge honor to be asked, but it's such a gigantic thing to to take on the the world of Harry Potter and the the world loves Harry Potter. But right away, I had a uh, I had the idea to make all seven covers a single image. So I knew right away the direction that I wanted to go. And so I would say for the few months that I was working on it, I alternated between terror and love. <laughs> there was love throughout, but a lot of terror. Why did you settle on that? Not settle on, but it's a brilliant concept to have that one image pervasive throughout the seven covers. I just saw it in my head. I, I didn't know what the seven images together would be exactly, but I, I saw in the first conversation I had with Scholastic about this when they asked me, 
the idea of lining up all seven covers to make a single image. When I was doing the invention of Hugo Cabret, there's a dream sequence where I had I had done a very long single image, and then it got cut up into four separate spreads. So I had so I had this, but you never saw them in the book all you know lined up. It was page turns. But I had really liked drawing one long image and then sort of dividing it into different individual images. So the idea was it would have to look good as a single large image, but each of the individual seven covers would have to stand alone as well. And so when I sat down to begin sketching, I was told originally I had two weeks to come up with a sketch for this. And then if the sketch got approved, then I would have a, a little while longer to do the finished art. I got the call on Halloween and I was told the art would be due March 1st. And so I actually handed in the sketch within one week and I handed in the final art on March 1st. So I'm very proud of that. And I'm very proud that I ran into you outside of the Scholastic <laughs> Building right after you handed it in. Yeah, it was a good day. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> So now one of the covers, I think The Prisoner of Azkaban, yep. does not have Harry on it. That's correct. Okay. So what was your thinking there? Well, as I was working out the large image itself, what I had begun doing was drawing swirling lines just to come up with something that would connect all seven of the covers. And I realized as I was drawing the swirling lines that it looked kind of like a snake, which would be perfect because of Nagini and Voldemort. And I wanted to look at the battle between good and evil that runs throughout these books. And so I thought that it, it was the snake itself that, that could tie all of them together. So I would go essentially from Harry's birth in book one, all the way through the, the Battle of Hogwarts and the, the coda 18 years later at the end of the seventh book, and then try to show the community, the world around Harry Potter. And Hermione is such a great character. I've always loved Hermione. I love how strong she is. I love how brave she is, how smart she is. She's a you know fantastic female character. And so when I when it came to that cover, and I was thinking about what was before it and what was after it, I realized that this would be a great opportunity to really highlight Hermione and the Time Turner and to surround her by the Dementors, which are a big part of that book as well. For our listeners who can't see the cover art, could you describe it for them? <laughs> I mentioned that I knew I wanted to make all seven covers a single image. And I knew right away I wanted to do it in black and white. I hadn't seen any Harry Potter covers in black and white before. And I love drawing in black and white. I think it can be very mysterious. There's a, a very old mysterious quality to black and white. And I draw with pencil and lots of little lines, which is called cross-hatching. And when you look at the work, you can see all of the little lines. So you can see my hand as I'm working across these images. And so when you see the covers, what you see is this black and white world of people and characters and you know uh, all the different uh, elements that are famous from J.K. Rowling's stories, but they're all wrapped within the undulating body of this snake. And so you, you don't quite know 
it seems you don't quite know where the snake begins or ends, but but coiled around the snake is Hedwig the owl and Harry, of course, and Harry as a baby and the three friends, and you've got Dobby and you've got the Triwizard Tournament, you've got Harry on a broom, you've got close-ups, you've got the close-up of Hermione we mentioned, and then you've got an even bigger close-up of Harry on the next book and a the on sixth book where Dumbledore uh, is is featured very strongly. There's also a big close-up of, of him. And then all of that comes together in the seventh book. So I, you know, I wanted to, so you finally see the snake's head in the seventh book. You see the sword of Gryffindor and you see a hand holding the sword of Gryffindor because the other challenge was to make something that was appealing to the fans, but also something that didn't give anything away for the people who haven't read the books yet. Because hopefully a lot of people who haven't read the books will be drawn to them and come discover them for the first time. And so I wanted to hint at a lot of things. So you see the hand of someone holding the sword of Gryffindor uh, right near the, the head of the snake, which alludes to certain things that happen. And then once you read the book, you find out whose hand that is. <laughs> God, what an intricate, fascinating <laughs> process. Now, you've talked about Dumbledore being based on a sculpture of Moses and Umbridge being based on a photograph of your husband. <laughs> that is true. David Serlin. Okay, <laughs> what about Harry? What inspired him? Well, well, the glasses for Harry were inspired by a pair of glasses that I actually wore in the movie adaptation of my book, Wonderstruck, which was adapted by Todd Haynes. And so they're vintage glasses. They're round, just like the ones you see on the covers. And we had my prescription put into those glasses. So I had them at home. I got to keep them after the shoot finished. And when I was asked to do these books, I realized I already have Harry Potter's glasses at home. And then, you know, it was really a matter of just reading what J.K. Rowling wrote about Harry and the descriptions of Harry and, and imagining what I thought he looked like. It's becoming evident that you're the perfect person for this job. <laughs> I <laughs> hope salute so. Salute whoever asked you. But there's also a collectible box set. Yes. I'd love for you to talk about the art on that. Yeah, I, I, I had this idea that the back of the box would be a close-up of Harry and then the sides of the box would include new house crests that I would design for each of the four houses of Hogwarts, which was really fun to do. I'm a Hufflepuff, by the way. Okay. And then I realized that usually when you take the books out of a box, inside there's nothing inside the box. It's just an empty box. You know, often you can see the cardboard inside because it's printed on the outside. But I thought if I'm really focusing on the battle between good and evil and, and the idea that there's good in evil and there's evil in the good, that they're they're mixed up and connected in a really fascinating, important way throughout the books, I think. And especially when you look at the relationship between Harry and Voldemort. And so I thought, what, what would happen if you take the books out of the box and there was something actually printed inside the box? So I thought if I have a big close-up of Harry on the outside of the box, when you take the books out and look inside, you would be surprised to discover the eyes, the glowing red eyes of Voldemort. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the scariest thing I've ever drawn. Yeah, so yeah, I hope is. I don't freak anybody out. <laughs> it is pretty terrible. You don't know that they're there. <laughs> Your interpretation of the Harry Potter universe now sits alongside the work of Mary Grandpre, Kazuki Buishi, and Jim Kay. Not bad. Talk about your place in that pantheon. Well, no, I'm 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 very very proud to be uh, among those incredible artists, and you know I think we'll, we'll always associate Mary's work with Harry. She she really helped us to to meet Harry Potter in a very very strong profound way, 
And then I think one of the things that Kazu did that was so brilliant was even after the beautiful design of all of the movies of Harry Potter, Kazu was able to completely redesign that world, but still make it identifiable as Harry Potter's world. Yet it was something we had never seen before. And so I, I remember when they came out thinking that was a real triumph because there there was so much that we already knew about Harry and he reimagined it so beautifully. And so when I was asked to do it, the, the, the things that interested me the most were the relationships between the characters and and this larger theme of good versus evil because i've i've never really been a fantasy artist i've never I've, i'm not a world builder the books that i've made myself like the invention of hugo cabret and wonderstruck and the marvels they're books that i hope feel like they're filled with magic and that they feel otherworldly but everything that happens in them actually could happen to you in the real world. There, there's an explanation for something in the real world, but they feel magical, hopefully. And so this was the first time where I, where, one of the first times where I was really being asked to draw magical things. And so having the chance to draw a centaur and ogres and giants and monsters and labyrinths and all these wonderful elements from the stories was, uh, very exciting for me, but it was more for me about the relationship between the characters and the friendships and who loved each other and who hated each other. And as I mentioned, ultimately that battle, which culminates in the seventh book. Oh, gosh. Getting back to that pantheon, I imagine you're all gods, but you still have to deal with the Harry Potter fandom. Mm. <laughs> what is that like? <laughs> well, at first I was scared of it because I, because it's so, it seems so overwhelming. I was a fan of Harry Potter myself when I was asked to do this. So I, I, I felt prepared in that way. I knew the books and I loved the books, but I was also aware that the, the world of the fans is a very, very big one and a very strong one. And while I was drawing the cover, while I was still working on it, I was asked to go to the Harry Potter celebration in Orlando at Harry Potter World and essentially talk to 75,000 people or however many it was about the fact that I was gonna be doing the 20th anniversary covers. And, <laughs> no uh, pressure. <laughs> and that, that was a little overwhelming. And plus the parks themselves in Orlando are incredibly beautiful. You know, you actually can walk down Diagon Alley and the, the shops are all there. And it really properly feels like a magical place and everyone's in costume. And there's very few kids around. It's mostly adults, but it is people who so deeply love these books. And I, I was signing some little posters we made of one of my sketches and like entire Quidditch teams would come up for their, you know, for signings. And so when I left, I had a, that's when I had my biggest panic was how could I ever live up to what all of these fans would want? But then I started thinking more about the fans and how friendly everybody was, how excited everybody was to meet each other, to talk to anybody involved with the Harry Potter world itself. And I, and I started realizing, which I, I knew, but I hadn't quite identified it, is that the, the, the fans want to love things. They, they want to love, they love the Harry Potter world. They want to meet you. They want to they want to love what you're doing. Like that's because they, they love what they're doing. They love what their friends are doing. They're, you know, all the Quidditch teams that are happening all around the world. Like everyone gathers because of that connection. And I realized I'm a fan also, 
you know, we all have our own Harry Potter in our minds and I have the incredible opportunity to draw my Harry Potter and share it with everyone. And so that made me feel like I was on the fan side. So hopefully they would be on mine. What are your earliest memories of reading the book for the first time and how did it feel? Well, it's very funny because I actually came very late to Harry Potter. The first time I read the books was two years ago. And so I was always on the outside of the Harry Potter universe. And, I, you know, but as a children's book writer and illustrator, there was always such an incredible thrill to know that this excitement was running through the world because of these books. And I used to work at an independent children's bookstore called Eeyore's Books for Children. And so every time a book came out, I would be out at midnight just walking by a bookstore that had all of those children, all of those adults in costumes with that kind of excitement for a book, it always made me excited and happy. And I always thought about the fact that we were all living through something that will never be repeated in history. This, We are all experiencing something historic with the publication of each of these books. And the last time maybe anything like this happened was the 19th century when Dickens was writing one of his books and he was writing it in installments and everybody wanted to find out if this character, Little Nell, lived or died. So apparently thousands and thousands of people went down to the dock when the ship came in from England with the last chapter to find out if Little Nell lived or died. And, but other than that, like, <laughs> you know, and that was once, uh, you know, so th- this is, this was a real phenomenon. So when I read them for the first time, I somehow had managed to avoid all spoiler alerts. And so, I was able to read all of the books for the first time, not essentially not knowing anything and just, you know, weeping and laughing. You're now a star in the Harry Potter universe, (laughs) (laughs) shall we say. That is so cool. Well, just one technical question. I'm kind of fascinated by the process of printing these books, Mm -hmm. going from your crosshatches on paper to getting this mass produced. Is there anything behind the scenes that was pretty cool for you to witness? I mean, the whole printing process was really wonderful to watch and to be a part of it because every, you know, a lot of times you don't think about this if you're a reader, but of course, every single thing about a book has to be decided. What type of paper, the type of the typography, uh, what kind of paper the cover is going to be on, the the ink, like if, if you, when you hold the actual covers of these 20th anniversary editions and you run your fingers across the titles, you can see that they're kind of bumpy. That's called embossed, but they're also got a foil in them. So it's not just like a regular ink. It has a little metallic quality to it. So there's entire books of those metallic inks. And there's books with all these different kinds of special effects for printing that you get to sit through you know, with the designers. And we were all figuring out exactly what we wanted every one of those elements to be. And then I also knew because it was going to be in the box, ultimately when the box is available, that all of the, I wanted the spines, even though the spines don't have an image on them, I still wanted there to be a pattern that would all line up when you put the seven books together. So I would sketch out the patterns by hand of these diamond shapes. And then, because I don't really use a computer at all. So graphic designers who know how to do all of that would then do sort of test runs where we would look at the the patterns sort of uh, translated through the computer to make them all neat and even, and then seeing how all of that works out. And then you get tests of the covers, you get tests of the 
you know, the, the box set itself so that you can see how it's going to print. And one of the things that the designer who I was working with decided to do was the paper that I drew the original cover on is actually a very, very bright white paper. I like to draw on a bright white paper, but we were looking at a test and when it was reproduced with bright white and the black, it felt a little, the whole image felt a little cold. So the, the designer made a suggestion where he put this very, very warm cream color uh, across the whole paper. So if you look at the at the covers now, you'll see that it's black on a very, very light, cream, warm cream color. And that was added after I finished all the art that was all done on the computer. And I think it really looks beautiful. It makes it feel just a, a little bit warmer. But if you were to just look at it, it, not knowing anything, you would say that's black and white, you know, but it's actually black on this very, very light, warm cream color. And so, yeah, so, and then for me, it's so exciting the first time that you get something back from the printer and you actually see it all together. And, and Scholastic shipped me a, a box of the books with the first set that they had gotten to share with me and uh, opening up that box and seeing the cover art on the actual book and being able to put them out on my dining room table and see them all line up and you know making sure that everything does line up correctly was also a bit of a challenge. One other printing thing is you usually have to draw about a quarter inch more of a drawing around the edges because when the machines that are cutting the paper go through the drawing at the edge, if you if, if, if they go right to the edge, you might see some white space. So you have to draw a little extra al around the edges so that when the blade cuts through it, there, it always eliminates any white. So it's always, it looks very clean. And so it's nice to finally see everything with the nice clean edges, the way they're meant to be seen. It was just, just remarkable. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, Brian. Thank you so much. And on behalf of all of the Harry Potter fans, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's really great to talk to you. Last, but certainly not least, we're talking with Jim Kay, the brilliant artist who was given the Herculean task of turning the beloved series into fully illustrated editions. Books one through three are currently available with Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire slated for release in 2019. Hi, Jim. We're thrilled to have you on the program today. Hello. Thank you so much for, for having me. As you can imagine, I've been so excited about this interview and I have a bunch of questions. My first one is, what did it feel like when you got the call to illustrate the Harry Potter series? Well, it didn't really sink in, to be honest, at first. It was actually my agent that rang up and said, um, are, are you sitting down? And I said, yes, she says, I've got a job for you. It's Harry Potter. And, and the weird thing is, about a week before that, I was killing some time at a friend's house and um, I've been watching the films. And then on the films, there are these making of, of Harry Potter, you know, uh, all behind the scenes action. And I watched those and I thought, who, get, who gets to do this? They're so lucky because it showed the people working on the costume and the set design and the casting and all that. And I thought, God, that's a, a dream job, you know. How will I ever get into that? And then Alison said, oh, you know, I've got this job for you. It's illustrating Harry Potter. And I assumed she meant the covers because I know that you have different versions of the covers. And I couldn't believe it, you know. And she said, oh, no, it's, it's you have to do the insides as well, you know. And I thought, crikey, that's uh, because... I love the films. And, you know, when I think of Daniel Radcliffe, I think of Harry Potter. And when I think of, you know, Rupert Grint, I think of, uh, of Ron. But then when I thought about those, I'd watch those making of films. And, and effectively, I could be not just a costume designer, but a set designer. I could cast the film. I could, and you could 
rebuild the whole world from scratch, which is both terrifying and really exciting, you know. So that's 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 what the initial feeling was both a sense of fear and, and wonder, you know. So you've just been asked to reimagine the visuals for the series. Tell us about that process. Well, you start from the bottom upwards. So uh, what you do is I start with a landscape and I, I literally sketch in 3D. So I'd use bits of paper and, and clay and just build these very quick landscapes. And by doing that, you've got a three-dimensional terrain. And so I worked out where the sun would rise, where the shadows would fall. So, you know, where would Hogwarts sit and, and where the sun would hit it in the morning and the evening. And it's a bit like once you've built your stage, you then start to populate it. So I started casting the book. And each each person, particularly the children, I had to really get real children because I think you get a lot of unexpected visuals out of real people. So um, I look for real children because they'd age over seven years as well. So I, I need a reference. I don't have kids of my own and I didn't really know any children. So I had to proactively go out and find children. But back then I couldn't tell them what they were involved in, you know. So it was all secret. So uh, luckily people were very open-minded and really helpful. You know, it took a lot of very kind sort of parents and teachers and friends to sort of populate the book effectively. But we did it in the end, you know. Oh, my goodness. And is this how you did the portraits as well? Could you walk us through some of the portraits? We have a few of the books here. Well, my, in the books, you have a whole page occupied by just a very a very set standard portrait. And, and I was influenced by, there was a great portrait artist called Holbein uh, who lived a long time ago. And he, he did these beautiful studies of people in a very naturalistic way, which is quite groundbreaking at the time. But the idea of a full-page portrait is me saying, this is my version of Harry Potter. These are my people. You know, um, and, and so I could lay down this, this sort of stamp, effectively, that said, this is the person I'm thinking of. The danger in that is that you're robbing the reader, potentially, of their own sort of uh, mental image of, say, Dumbledore. But all I could do is is go over the text again and again and again. And, and I'm, I'm just trying to be as true to the text as possible. So those portraits really are just a way of, of underlining the visuals I see when I, I read the book as close to the text as possible. Um, and they're done in, uh, you know, oils. Some of them are done in acrylic. Um, but I'm also interested in imagery in, in, in portraits, which again is something that you see more of in this sort of... Uh, 16th 17th century you'd have little images and what you'd call easter eggs today i suppose so within each portrait would be something that would relate to that character or the book uh and it was really fun and it's been great because harry potter fans are so observant i mean really meticulously pour over the books so i've seen fan sites where people have broken down the easter eggs on each book you know and that's that's really rewarding really oh my goodness who's your favorite character to draw hagrid now, partly because if you draw children and you put a line in the wrong place, you've aged that child by about <laughs> 10 years. So uh, Hagrid is, because he's a giant and he's really hairy, he's mostly just scribble. So you can't put too many lines on Hagrid, you know. Uh, but also, I love, I just love giants. There's something about uh, an adult relationship with a giant that's rather like a child's relationship with an adult because for an adult, you're looking up at Hagrid, you know, and it's like being a child again. And there's something very... Um, sort of comforting about him because you know you imagine a hug from Hagrid and it would sort of totally envelop you so I, I like him because he's both frightening and yet familiar and comforting at the same time he's a strange mixture and he's uh he's quite an innocent soul as well you know which again makes him a little bit childlike so uh, I sort of relate to him in a way you know yeah <laughs> 
I know you visited a lot of buildings in the UK when you were doing research for the illustrations. Yeah, I, I, I'm obsessed with architecture. I love old buildings. And we're very lucky that in, in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, we have these very, very old buildings that have been occupied for so long that, that you get sort of different layers, almost like different strata of occupation. And, and um, they recently did some archaeology in England. They found, just beneath the soil, they found um, uh, an 18th century inn and they found the fireplace. And inside the fireplace, they found pistol shots. So on a rowdy night, people have been in this inn drinking and firing their pistols into the fireplace. And beneath that, they found sort of medieval things. And beneath that, Roman. And beneath that, prehistoric. And I love that buildings in England and Europe have that pattern of that age, which is... It's just um, manna from heaven for an illustrator, you know. So I spend a lot of time going around old places and thinking, I can use this staircase in Hogwarts, you know, I can use this, these tiles. And um, that's my favourite thing. The research part of it is just pure pleasure, you know, because you're getting to see these places and, and it's just all a necessary part of the process. So it's wonderful. And you also love the graffiti in the Tower of London. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's amazing. I mean, tragic because people were incarcerated in this terrible condition. But, but I mean, when you think, when someone says, oh, graffiti in the Tower of London, you think sort of roughly scratched names. They had a lot of time on their hands, you know. So, so there were these really beautiful, elaborate uh, coats of arms and things scratched in there. I like graffiti in general. I've photographed it all around the world. You know, in, uh, there's lots of it in Italy. And, um, you know, I was in uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum recently and there's things scratched on the walls there, very rude things scratched on the walls. Uh, so it's just, there's something very immediate about it, you know, in that, in, in, in a way that no other art can somehow manage because it's it's people from every strata of life as well. So, you know, you don't have to be an artist or anything to leave your mark in history. You can just scratch it on a toilet wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also love the natural world. I think you have, your studio is almost set in the natural world. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's my first obsession. Uh, I, didn't, I had terrible eyesight as a little boy, so I couldn't see very, I still can't see very well, but um, I couldn't see distance very well. And so I, I was fascinated with things close up. So I used to play with insects all the time. It got me a nickname, actually, because um, uh, they'd say, um, what are you doing, Jimmy? No, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm figgling with this insect, meaning I'm playing with it, figgling, figgling, because I couldn't say fiddling. And, uh, and it gave me the name Figgle. So I was this little boy called Figgle that used to play with insects all the time, you know, and bugs <laughs> and things. And I just find them beautiful. And, and there's something... When you, the closer you look, the more majestic and, and bizarre and alien they become insects, you know, the closer and closer you look. And they inform a lot of my work. So at the moment, I'm designing a costume for the Yule Ball, and it's based on the colours I found on a moth, uh, which is a, an extraordinary um, purple and green. With these two colours I never thought would work together, olive green and sort of purple. And so, yeah, it's funny how very small things um, inform, you know, the larger picture, really. But I'm very fond of wildlife in general. Yeah. And did that lead to your love of doing anatomical illustrations? I think those are so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, there's a great museum in London called the Hunterian, and it's at the Royal College of Surgeons. And you have preserved in uh, alcohol examples of, of body parts and diseases and, and rare anomalies in, in human growth. And it's macabre, but if you want to study anatomy, there's no substitution for sitting in front of, you know, the real thing. Uh, and the great thing about sort of bits of bodies or dead bodies, they don't move much. So, you know, you've got lots of time uh, to do that. And um, I just, 
It's the scientific mind I really love. Um, it's that approach, that very factual, analytical approach. Because drawing is actually about looking. It's about looking more than drawing, I'd say, actually. It, the, the process of observation is more important than what you put down on paper. I think if everyone learned to draw, you'd, you'd, you'd see the world slightly differently. There'd be no such thing as um, uh, you know, a good-looking or an ugly person. It's just a person that's different to draw, you know. Now, I know you said you can't slip anything past Harry Potter fans, no, but I wondered, <laughs> yeah. I, I wondered what some of your interactions were like with young fans of the book and of your work. I was completely naive, actually, because I, I knew that it was popular, but I thought I was, I was kind of hoping this thing would sort of pop out and no one would notice. <laughs> yeah, you know, just, it would just sneak it out. And, and, uh, but of course, when you're in a studio on your own all day, you forget that people read this. Ultimately, you're so obsessed with your own in your own little world you forget that this stuff goes out there so when you see it on a, a shelf in a shop it's that strange why is my work on you know why, why how do i know that book there and it's it's still an odd separation that people are seeing things that i'm working on in solitude for a very long time but the response has been really nice and it's very i got a letter from a boy in hawaii and that's strange to me because it's it's about a school in scotland you know it's a very sort of british book and here's this boy in a, you know, a subtropical paradise, well, a tropical paradise, um, saying, oh, I've been reading your book and looking at your illustrations, you know, and, and that's really, it's amazing. It's, it's the, the reach that J.K. Rowling's work has got is phenomenal, you know. And I think because the themes are universal, it doesn't matter that it's set in a school in Scotland. I think everybody relates to it, you know. What was the most surprising thing for you working on this whole project? Um, how difficult it would be. I, th I, I, I knew it would be difficult. I, my old lecturer used to say, if something scares you, it's worth doing. And you only get better by doing things that are completely outside your comfort zone. And this is so far outside my comfort zone. It, it, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. And most of the work I do ends up in the bin, you know. Uh, if it was any other job, you'd, you'd give it up and say, God, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. You know, I've got to find something better. But I love it even though it's extremely difficult. I, I, for someone like me to sit down in a room all day, 12, 14 hours a day, is, is nigh on torture because I'm quite sort of, you know, restless. Uh, so it is very, very difficult. I don't think people to think that most illustrators go through this and I don't want people to think, oh, you know, illustration is really easy because these people just sit and colouring all day. Every illustrator I know goes through terrible self-doubt, uh, you know, loneliness, hours of, of, of hard work. And a lot of stuff ends up in the bin. So I knew it'd be hard, but what surprised me was it was how hard it would be. It's been very, very difficult. Your hours are punishing. I mean, yeah, the f the first two and a half years, I worked a minimum twelve hours a day, seven days a week, even Christmas Day, you know. Um, and by the end of it, I was an absolute wreck. And then I had about five days off, and we had to go straight into Chamber of Secrets, which I then had a year to do. And then we went straight from that into. Um, into a third book, you know, Azkaban. And gosh, yeah, that was the toughest, the toughest year of my life. But I love it, you know. That's the strange thing if someone said, but what would you rather do? You know, I said, well, I wouldn't rather do anything else. You know, I know it's difficult, but I love it. I really love it, yeah. Now, for someone, let's pretend there's a person out there who has not seen one of your illustrations. I don't know who that person would be, but could you choose one and describe it to our listeners? The weird thing is, Every illustrator will tell you that you, it's very hard to look at your own work. It takes about, after about two or three years, you sort of separate, uh, separated from it and it's okay again. But it's a diary of difficulties, you know, it's all the things that you, <laughs> that you struggle with. And um, 
So this, this is one of um, uh, Hermione in front of um, a door covered in graffiti. And we were talking about graffiti earlier. And that door was, um, I was in a really old church in England. But it had a beautiful door. So I, I, you know, I made a note of that door and then put it behind Hermione. And then looking at graffiti again, I put all that graffiti behind. So there are characters from Harry Potter. Their names have been scratched on the... Uh, there's also a little nod to J.K. Rowling. There's an ink pot there with her initials underneath, an ink pot and a quill inside, J.K.R. Um, so that was just me having a bit of fun. And I mentioned Figgle earlier. My name, Figgle, is carved into the door, you see, as well. <laughs> uh, so there are, yeah, characters from Potter, characters, friends of mine. And um, it's just one of those things that I look at and, and I know exactly where I was what I was doing at the time. It's 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 a diary entry for me. You it's know? a visual yeah. diary. Yeah. And the lighting, her face, it, it almost looks like a Renaissance painting. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, she's a, my niece actually models for Hermione and she's ever so sweet. Uh, and she is Hermione to me, you know, which makes oh, it so much easier. Yeah. Um, and and I like illustrating things that are slightly outside the text. So there's just a one line mention that Hermione had made these beautiful blue flames. And it was just that one line. And I thought, well, that's something nice to get hold of because you can build on that then, you know. I mean, we all want to illustrate the major scenes, but it's also you want to, you want to expand upon the world a little bit. A little bit. And I like doing that. You, you're, you're sort of giving credence to, to the world of Potter. You're, you're adding depth and width to it, you know, in any way you can. And, and that's a real pleasure for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you recently were with some of the other Harry Potter illustrators yeah brian selznick kazu you guys compare notes or? that was so nice yeah we did because um i've only met one or two other people that have worked on harry potter and so it's so nice to talk about the same thing it's just nice to meet illustrators you know we don't often get together um and they're two very different people uh kazu is the most centered sort of um intelligent calm very sort of Oh, he's a wonderful ocean of sort of peacefulness, you know, and he's and, and Brian is this sort of effervescent, chatty, explosive sort of you know fountainhead, and so spending the day with two of them, it was it was great fun. It was really good fun, and I God, I love their work, you know. Uh, two again, two very different styles, but we all have exactly the same appreciation, uh, and it's so nice. I'm hoping that Harry Potter will become like Alice in Wonderland in that over the decades, lots of different illustrators will do it, and they'll all bring their different take. Uh, to the to the story, I'm sure they will actually. I think it's just going to live on and live on. You know, I can't wait to see um, someone do the, the next illustrated version. I, I, partly because I want to know what they're going through. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it, it it was great. Really nice guys as well. You can't meet two nicer people. Yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah, what a talent. So great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again to Mary, Brian, and Jim for joining us. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the work of Brian Selznick and Jim Kay, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Next week, in our third and final installment of our special Harry Potter series, we'll be hearing from Scholastic employees who have been with Harry from the very beginning. They'll share their favorite memories about bringing the series to life. Be sure to subscribe to Scholastic Reads in your favorite podcast app so that every episode will automatically be downloaded to your phone. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, 
and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. Thank you.